Well, if I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor here for uh, Riverwood. Really, really glad that you have joined us. And uh, I want to start by giving you a uh, financial tip. I want to encourage you to make a, an investment in a company that sells caffeinated drinks because I suspect that my family will be purchasing a lot of them because of our new family member. Would you all take a moment to meet Kaya? Yes, I finally did it uh, after confessing my love of dogs and uh, how I would search online and look at them and torture myself. We finally got a little eight-week-old uh, beagle, and she is incredibly precious. I know everyone's like, a beagle? Aaron, what are you thinking? Even my own dad was like, oh, I would never get a beagle. This is the quietest beagle we've ever been around. Of course, it could all change in like six weeks, but right now she's actually really, really good. And even the non-dog lovers in our family have fallen in love. Uh, Kaya is absolutely wonderful and precious. Uh, many years ago, I met Leonard. Uh, it didn't take you very long to realize that Leonard was incredibly intelligent. Uh, Leonard had been hired by an engineering firm before he even graduated college. Uh, just in conversations with him, interactions, you just had the sense like he could run mathematical circles around you without breaking a sweat. I mean, the guy was just a genius. But as I got to know Leonard, I got to know him through this Thursday night young adult ministry in Cedar Rapids called Watershed. I and a few other leaders from some other churches started the citywide ministry where 20-somethings from about 12 different churches or so would gather every Thursday night for worship and, and teaching. And Leonard was there almost every Thursday. But as I got to know him through those Thursday events, I began to discover that Leonard was not a Christian. The reason Leonard showed up at this Christian event was to meet other young adults his age. When he moved to town, he didn't have many friends, had heard about it, so he thought, this is where I might get to meet some people. And so one day, Leonard and I got together for coffee, just to have a chat, just for me to get to know him. And so I was asking him what he believed in, if he didn't believe the, the scriptures. Because he said that, you know, while he was fascinated with the Bible, he'd, he'd grown up with a grandma who went to church, so he went every once in a while. So he thought the Bible was fascinating, but he also said a lot of fiction books were fascinating. So I wanted to know, what, what is it that makes you tick? What is it that gives you purpose? What do you believe? And he said that recently he had been reading this philosopher. I wish for the life of me I could tell you who the philosopher was, but he was on like the third or fourth book by this philosopher. And he thought, Leonard thought that this philosopher had it all figured out. But the more Leonard began to share with me, the more stunned I became. Because the stuff I was hearing from Leonard about this philosopher made me just wonder how in the world could this 25-year-old genius believe the stuff that he is currently spouting? I, I, I just couldn't believe it. So I just very gently pushed back. I, I'm not good at confrontation. And so I just, you know, asked some questions, tried to get to know. And basically Leonard said to me, well, Aaron, I wouldn't expect someone like you to understand. It takes a genius like me to understand these concepts. I think I failed to mention that Leonard didn't have many friends. Now you know why. The more we talked, though, I began to learn something very critical about life. As I watched this brilliant 25-year-old buy into these weird, whacked-out, crazy ideas, I began to realize you can believe whatever you want you can believe so much on it that even when there's overwhelming evidence, 
You can completely reject it and just continue to stay with what you know, with what you like, because this makes sense to you. This is comfortable, and I'm going to reject anything and everything else. Let me give you an example. Here in the last few years, I'd say maybe last 10 or so, uh, there has been a group of people who believe that we've all been duped. The earth is not global, I mean, a globe, it is flat. A few years ago, one of Leanne's high school friends, I became friends with him on Facebook, um, quite a character, quite a guy, but all of a sudden he began posting a lot of stuff about a flat earth. And, and basically when someone would try to respond, he would just say, here, here's YouTube videos, go and watch these, research for yourself. And you will discover the evidence is overwhelming. We've all been duped. It's a hoax. Like all those images you see of the circle, those are all Photoshop. Like the earth is flat. That's what the Bible teaches. So this is what we know to be true. So it, it's flat. Now here's the thing. As I'm talking, you can tell that I believe that the earth is a globe. And so right now, if you're online or you're, you're you know, here in the room and you believe that the earth is flat... What you're probably thinking right now is, I don't know if I can now listen to this guy. Because you believe so firmly that the earth is flat, that anything else that comes against that now is questionable. And if I'm wrong on this, which you're so sure about, you're not sure now that you could even listen and understand the rest of what I'm going to say. Because if I'm wrong about this that has so much evidence, I don't know if I can trust anything else. Uh, two guys, uh, oh, what, are, what are their names again? Uh, Gary Morrison and uh, Morton Shapiro. They wrote a book uh, this past year during the pandemic called Minds Wide Shut. In their book, they say that uh, America is more divided than ever because of this phenomenon. And it isn't just like in science with flat earth versus round earth. You could find this in the political realm. You can find this in church realm, religion. You can find this theologically. That, that there is this spectrum but rather than a conversation be able to take place between the different sides, people get so entrenched in their position that anything that comes from outside of their camp gets immediately rejected. And so, yeah, there may be evidence that the earth is round, but it doesn't fit my narrative, so therefore I reject it. But it's even going farther. We go to the point that we now reject the very people who say those things. So, for, for instance, some people, you say the name Fox News, there are going to be some people who immediately go, oh, no way. Anything said on Fox News is so false. Where there's others, people going, oh, Fox News, they're the best program. Anything they say is so good and accurate and right. Or even take it into Christianity. You could say the name of some megachurch pastor. Maybe they've sold some books. Maybe, you know, you've, you listen to their podcast. You say their name. There will be some people who say, oh, yeah, everything he says is gold. I love listening to him. And there are other people going, man, anything he says is complete heresy. Because we get into our camps and ends up dividing us, and we refuse to listen to anything else that even begins to challenge it or question it. The reason I bring this up is because today we're going to see Jesus have a conversation with some people who completely reject some of what Jesus has been teaching. It doesn't fit their narrative, it doesn't fit their box. And the reason we're going to look at this today is because I think sometimes we fall into the same thought trap. 
That as we begin looking at things in life, there's things that we want, things that we desire, or things that our culture is saying to us, but the scriptures sometimes run counter to it. They go against the grain, and it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it. So sometimes we try to rework the scriptures to massage it, to get it to say what we want it to, or, or we just begin to completely ignore it. And today, as we look at this certain sect of Judaism and see how they confronted Jesus, I, I want to warn you that when you begin to push back on some of these things, you may find yourself just like that sect of Judaism and find yourself pushing it back against God himself. And we see this in the book of Mark, chapter 12. So if you brought a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to Mark 12. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen, whether you're online or you're here in person. Um, But we just really encourage you, get a Bible. We don't care if that's a digital Bible or paper Bible, just have one. Uh, This week, we finally were able to put out our resource table. That's why we have paper handouts finally again. On that table are some paper Bibles. So if you don't own a Bible, by all means, just stop back there, pick up one. We've got two different translations. We will find the one that will fit you best, and then that could become your everyday Bible. Or you could do what some of our church family has done and download a Bible to your phone. That way, wherever you go with your phone, you've always got a Bible available, and feel free to use that here on Sundays. We've been in this series in Mark chapter, uh, I mean, in Mark for quite a while. Uh, we've made it up here to mid part of chapter 12. And what I'm hoping you will see today is that God's word even when it seems to kind of go against us, it's actually for us. It's actually a good thing. And and rather than trying to get the the scriptures to contort, to fit with what we want it to say, instead, we need to see that that we need to fit and conform to what it has already said. And we see this in the conversation that takes place between Jesus and this group known as the Sadducees. So please join me in verse 18 as we go through verse 27. And Sadducees, came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the living, but of, I mean, sorry, but he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. If I make any mistakes today, I'm just going to say it's... uh, sleep deprivation due to dog. Uh, that's, that's going to be my I- excuse for quite a while. 
Uh, last week, we saw Jesus having a conversation with a sect of Judaism known as the Pharisees. Uh, we'd seen at the end of chapter 11, the Pharisees having this conversation with Jesus. That led into chapter 12, where then Jesus tells a parable, and they perceived that the parable was actually against them. Uh, in a sense, through the parable, he prophesied that they were going to have him arrested and killed. And as they realize he's kind of catching on, he's understanding our schemes, they decide, well, we got to get rid of this guy. We got we to trap him. So we saw last week how they went in disguise, partnered up with the Herodians, and tried to trick him to get him to answer this question about taxes. Well, they weren't able to trick him. He actually squirmed out of it. He didn't fall for the trap. See, what they were hoping was, but no matter how he answered, he'd either get canceled by society or he'd get arrested by Rome. And neither happened. Instead, as he works the conversation, he traps them, making them realize that humans have the image of God embedded in them. So if the image of God is in them, then we need to give all of ourselves to God. Well, I suspect that there were these Sadducees, a different sect of Judaism, listening in. And they're inwardly laughing because Jesus just made the Pharisees look foolish. You see, the Pharisees were all about power. The the this, I mean, sorry, the Sadducees. The Sadducees held a lot of the positions on the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish high court. Uh, they were the ones who had a little more influence with Rome versus the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees spent all of their time studying the scripture. So they made themselves all about God's word, God's law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, did not. They would have been considered liberal when it came to the scriptures. They only believed that the first five books of the Bible were authoritative. The ones that Moses wrote, that's all that matters. Everything else, eh, nice literature, not God's word. So they had this disagreement with the Pharisees. And so because they were all about the law of Moses, they became all about law and power. And so they assumed these positions of authority. Well, Jesus, much of what he taught reflected Pharisee teaching. And so they want to discredit him. So because the, the Pharisees and Herodians just failed in their attempt, the Sadducees think to themselves, we can do this. We're the smartest dudes around. We got this. We can play these theological circles and not break a sweat. And so they approach Jesus with the perfect question. And it all comes from combining two different things. They combine a passage out of Deuteronomy with the book of Tobit. Let's go to Deuteronomy first. In Deuteronomy 25, God writes through Moses in the law this. This is verses 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his deceased of, of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. All right, I will admit, my modern American mind thinks that is weird. All right, I, I've got a really cool sister-in-law. We were texting a bunch yesterday. My niece and nephew were at the swimming meet. I got a link. I had it up on YouTube as I was trying to, you know, finish this and take care of a dog. And so we were texting a bunch. She's great. If my brother dies, though, I am not looking to propose. Right? It, it, it's just weird. But what's weird to us was protection for them. You see, many ancient cultures, and unfortunately even some modern-day cultures, view women as just being barely above property. 
Uh, currently, there is a group called International Justice Mission. They work through legal means trying to help people, mostly to get out of slavery, whether it's labor or sex slavery, but also they find instances and cases where a man will die and his extended family, his parents, his, his brothers, will swoop in and take everything. They'll kick the widow out because they don't see it as being her because she's just barely property. Instead, it's theirs because this was their brother. This was their son. So they're going to take the property for themselves and leave her with nothing. That's why God writes something like Deuteronomy 25. This is known as leveret marriage. It helped to level the playing field because what it did was by the brother providing a son and giving that son the name of the deceased husband, it allowed that deceased husband's name to continue, his line to continue, and all of his property would then go to the son, which means the wife continues to keep it. She continues to take care of it. She has property, so she therefore has a measure of wealth, and when the son grows, it all goes to him, and he will then care for his mom who'd cared for him. It was protection. Now, because it's in Deuteronomy, the Sadducees have no problem with this idea of leveret marriage. I mean, because Moses wrote it. It's in the first five books of the Bible. So that's authoritative. That's fine. What they don't think is fine is the concept of resurrection. Uh, you see, you don't find resurrection in those first five books of the Bible. You, you find it in Daniel. You find it in Psalms. You find it in Ezekiel. But you do not find it in those first five books, the Torah. And so because it's not there, it doesn't exist. And so they completely reject it. Well, Jesus teaches as though he believes in resurrection. So they're now going to discredit him. They're going to trap him. They're going to catch him. And what they do is they take this concept of leveret marriage and they combine it with the book of Tobit. The book of Tobit is a uh, book in the Apocrypha. So that means some Christian uh, denominations believe this to be scripture, but a large majority, primarily Protestants, do not believe that it is scripture. Even most of the Jews do not believe it is scripture. It was written about 3 uh, BC, and it's about two people. It's about a blind man by the name of Tobit and a young righteous woman by the name of Sarah. Now, I'm going to spoil the story for you. Tobit's son, Tobias, ends up finding a way to cure his dad of his blindness and ends up marrying Sarah, and they all live happily ever after. But before that big wedding night, Sarah actually tries to get engaged several times. The problem is she's being romantically pursued by a demon. Now, no surprise, she doesn't like the demon. Well, anytime she meets a man, he proposes they're going to get married. They say their wedding vows. They go to the wedding chamber and there the demon kills the man so the marriage cannot be consummated to keep Sarah for himself. And this happens seven times. And so the Sadducees take this idea out of the book of Tobit. They combine it with leveret marriage out of Deuteronomy. They put them together because this is so ludicrous. This proves that there's no resurrection. So, I mean, they got him. I mean, they know they're going to pose this question to him, and Jesus is going to go, uh, well, I never thought of it that way. I mean, it's like he's going to dip his hand into the cookie jar, and they're going to catch him, and he's not going to have a response. Anyone ever been asked, oh, yeah, if you believe in an all-powerful God, well, could God create a rock that, that he couldn't lift? Like, that, that's what they're trying to do, to trap him. So they're smiling inside. They ask the question, and then Jesus responds. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, 
Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know, because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Ouch. I mean, like Jesus just goes right at him. He doesn't go, oh, you know, that, that's quite a concept. You know, let's talk this through. No, he just like, uh, you guys think you know, but you don't. You guys are so wrong, you're so off. The Sadducees think they have it all figured out. They know that those first five books of the Bible, that's the only authoritative scripture, so they wipe away everything else. Even though the large majority of Judaism at the time believed that the rest of it was also scripture, they didn't buy it. The evidence was overwhelming. So many people accepted it, but they wouldn't listen. And so because resurrection's in that and not in theirs, nope. And Jesus is now showing them, you've got to expand your thinking. You've got to realize all of it is scripture. You think you know the scriptures, but you don't. And because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. You see, Jesus is from heaven. So he knows there is resurrection. We've heard Jesus already say that before Abraham was, I am. Like he knew Abraham personally. And, And so that's why he says to them there in verse 25, he's like, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. I mean, he's been there. He knows. Now, when he says there that there ain't angels in heaven, that's another little dig. It turns out the the Sadducees did not just believe there was no resurrection. They also did not believe in angels. And so when Jesus says that, oh yeah, when people die, they go to heaven and they become like angels. So it's, it's a little dig. But, but please, don't make the mistake. First of all, he did not say that they become angels. He said they become like angels. Uh, I have been to some funerals, or I've talked with people who have had a loved one pass away, and they have said, well, now they're an angel. It, it's kind of a beautiful concept, but it, it's not biblical, unfortunately. If you go to Psalm 8-5, what you discover is that when God created humans, it says that he created them a little lower than the angels. So in other words, you've got God, the angels, humans, and then the rest of creation. But then we learn through 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, the apostle Paul says that, do you not know that when someone who is a follower of Jesus passes away, that they then become greater than the angels, that they will actually judge angels. And so if your loved one is a follower of Jesus, they knew the gospel and they they go to spend eternity with the Father, Please don't demote them. Please don't say, well, they're now an angel. No, they're actually greater. Also, I I just can't help but think that maybe, maybe Jesus is a little insulted that they don't believe in angels. I mean, as God the Son, he was there in the creation of all things. So he created the angels. So he knows them by name. And so I wonder if it's like someone, you know, a stranger coming up to you going, "Um, yeah, I don't think you really have children. You know, I, I don't really think that you have that best friend. I mean, like someone coming up to me and going, you know, the way you talk about this Jake Epley guy, I, I just don't think someone like that exists. Like, I mean, they, they, he just sounds way too good. I, I, I think the whole entire thing is a hoax. I think the whole Facebook thing is you, Aaron, creating the profile. You found some redheaded bearded guy on the internet. You're just stealing his photos. It's a hoax. There's no one like Jake Epley. We just look at the person and go, what do you mean? 
I think that's what's happening in the moment. Jesus is looking at them going, you say there's no angels. What, what do you mean? Yes, people become like angels because angels are real. And when they die, they're not married nor given in marriage. I remember one time doing premarital counseling with a young couple, and somehow this idea came up that there's no marriage in heaven. So I was trying to make the point, which I'll make the point to you, is that if you are married, this is the only marriage you have. So make the most of it. Love this person. Serve them. Give everything into it. Because after you die, you will no longer be married. I, I remember this, person, these, this couple sitting there, and they're looking at me, and they're like, oh, that's kind of sad. We, we kind of were hoping we'd get to be married for eternity. Part of me thought, oh, that's really cute. That's romantic. It's not biblical. The reason is, is there's only one marriage of heaven. It's between Jesus and his church. You see, there's no need for reproduction, so there's no need for marriage. And, and so we get to be united with Christ for eternity. And so that's why Jesus makes this point that you, these Sadducees, you think you understand. You think you've got this all figured out. You've taken Deuteronomy and Tobit. You put these together, and you guys are so wrong. That's why we see these three takeaways. Oh, I'm sorry, before we get to that. What Jesus does is absolutely brilliant. He does not just state his opinion. He begins to back it up. If you go there down to verses 26 uh, and 27, you see him go back to a story that comes from Exodus. This comes from Exodus chapter 3, and it's the story of the burning bush. In, in Exodus 1 and 2, we, we meet Moses. He's born to a... Um, uh, uh, Jewish family, but the Pharaoh at the time had said, you have to kill all Jewish boys. And so they, they wanted to protect their son, so they stuck him in a basket. The Pharaoh's daughter finds him, so he basically gets adopted and becomes the Pharaoh's grandson. So he's raised at like the top of Egypt. Well, he knows that he's Jewish, and one day he sees an Egyptian soldier uh, uh, torturing, um, like uh, beating on one of the Israelites. And so he goes to stop the guy and ends up killing him. Well, out of fear that he's now going to be killed for having killed an Egyptian soldier, he flees and ends up as a shepherd out in the middle of the wilderness. So he goes from being one of the top in Egypt to being one of the lowest in society. And now he's just with sheep. And I imagine the night is cool. The sun's starting to set. And all of a sudden he sees fire. And no one's around. So he begins to approach. And he sees that it's a bush. This bush is on fire. But as he watches it, the bush does not get consumed. So he begins to come forward to see what is happening, and God speaks out of the bush. God called to Moses out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he, God, said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, the Sadducees know this story. In fact, some of them probably had it memorized. So when Jesus says, well, you guys know the story of the burning bush, inside they're thinking, yeah. I mean, if you need proof that we only followed the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses, this is it. This is when Moses gets called by God. And so, of course, we know the story. This proves our point. And Jesus looks at him and goes, yes, but you're missing something very important. You think you know it, but you're missing some key evidence. You're missing one verb. 
God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, well, I used to know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus uses that to point out that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they were God followers, God fears, they did not just die and their bodies remain in the ground and that was it. Their souls were resurrected. So that leads us to our three takeaways. The first takeaway that I think we get through Jesus' response to the Sadducees is number one, that God is alive and powerful. God is alive and powerful. The large majority of you, I think, already believe this. However, I think the Sadducees, if asked, would say that they also believed this. They, they would believe that God is alive, yes. Yeah, God is powerful. I mean, they could read in their Pentateuch, the, the, I mean, the Torah, they could read that God created all things, that God, you know, did these miracles in Egypt to bring the Israelites out, God parted the Red Sea, and God even spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Yes, God is powerful. And yet, by denying the resurrection, they're in a sense saying, yeah, but God's not powerful enough to do that. Now, we've already seen in this book, Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. So Jesus knows resurrection can happen. But these guys are missing it because I don't care what the evidence says. I don't care what people say about what you did, Jesus, for the little girl. It doesn't fit our narrative. And Jesus is saying, you're missing out. There's a guy by the name of Carl Henry that wrote this about this very passage, this very verse. He said that the charge against the Sadducees, okay, the charge against the Sadducees was that their detachment from God's power was due to a deficient knowledge of Scripture. And Jesus here pays to the Scriptures one of his ministry's highest tributes when he implies that knowledge of Scripture will guard one from theological error and acquaint one with the power of God. See, he's trying to point out to them that you guys are missing out on the power of God because you have such a truncated view of the scriptures. You're missing how alive, how powerful God is. Now, many of us, we want to see God's power. We, we pray to see a miracle because we have a loved one who's in the hospital. We, we know of some really tragic thing that happened. We ask for God to do the miracle. And you've heard me teach here many times. Go ahead, pray for that miracle. Because out of his mercy and out of his power, God might answer it. But sometimes God has a different plan, which is actually a better plan. So just because God doesn't do it your way in your time doesn't mean he's mean and evil. You've got to come to a place where you trust him. But he is powerful enough. But what Jesus is trying to say to the Sadducees is sometimes God reveals his power through the miracle, but sometimes God just reveals his power in his presence. And when you're in the scriptures, you're there in God's presence, learning what he wrote through these human authors. So Jesus, I think, wants us to take away today that God is alive and powerful. Second thing I think we should take away from this passage is that God's word is reliable. This past week in the Waverly newspaper, um, uh, anytime there's a Thursday paper, they have a, a church page. I'm one of the uh, nine pastors that are in the rotation. And there's another retired pastor who writes one of these nine uh, you know, articles. And this past week, this retired pastor shared what he's been sharing through many of his articles in the paper of how he basically thinks that Christianity is not what we've all been bought to believe it is. 
He denies that there, Jesus was uh, God. He denies Jesus dying on the cross. He denies that, that, you know, substitutionary atonement, doesn't think Jesus rose from the dead. He thinks the Bible is just merely a human product. And, and there's good things in it. We can learn Jesus is a wonderful man, so we can learn all sorts of things about him. So this guy would say he is a Jesus follower, but he does not believe the tenets of Christianity anymore. But his spiritual journey as a now retired pastor really isn't that uncommon. There are a number of people who grew up in church, used to believe certain things, and no longer do. Some of them, it's because they got asked a question that they couldn't answer. That, that, that like when some Sadducee said, oh, but what about this? They couldn't be like Jesus and give a good response. They're like, I, I don't know. And, and that question causes them to begin to doubt, and pretty soon everything else begins to fall apart. Many, many years ago, that young adult ministry I was telling you about, Watershed, as we were getting ready to start that, I went through a season, several weeks long, where I began to think I bought into a lie that Christianity was fake. And here I was, a pastor. A number of people have had their faith challenged. And when those challenges come, the whole thing crumbles down. Other people have walked away from the Christian faith because of events. Something evil and horrible has been done to them or it's been done to a loved one and it causes them to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's power, to doubt God's existence and the whole thing just comes tumbling down. There, there are a wide variety of reasons why people would leave the, the Christian faith. But I've discovered that among a lot of the stories, there's one common part. That is they begin to doubt the reliability of the scriptures. Remember I said, you can believe anything you want. You can go and find the evidence that's going to prove what you want it to be. Now, I'm not saying that these people who've left Christianity, that all of them wanted to. Many of them, they felt like everything just was stolen from them. But for a number of people, you can go and find the evidence that's going to prove the Bible is not reliable. At the same time, you can also go and find plenty of evidence that shows it is very reliable. For me personally... I'm going to go with the guy who could raise himself from the dead. And when that guy says that the Bible is so reliable, it even is reliable down to the verb, that's the guy I'm going to go with. Jesus wants you to know the Bible is reliable. And that's important to know because of our third takeaway. The last thing I think we, Jesus would want us to take away from this is to realize that God's word is for you. When Moses wrote the book of Exodus, who do you think he had in mind? Who do you think was going to be his readership? I suspected that Moses, knowing the people he was leading, how fickle they were, was trying to write these things down, being moved by God to help protect the people so that they would remember, so that they wouldn't do the same mistake they did when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and they're down there building a golden calf. He's trying to protect these people. So he writes the story. It was for them. And yet when Jesus dips back, brings Exodus 3 into his time, he's basically saying, oh, but guess what? It wasn't just for Moses' audience. It's also for you Sadducees. That's why Matthew, in his version of this exact same story, the one we've been looking at in Mark 12, Matthew shares it in Matthew 22. He has Jesus say this. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? See what was written back in Exodus? It was for the Sadducees. And what was written in Exodus 
was also written to you. Now, do, do not make the mistake that a lot of us make. The Bible is for you. It is not about you. We've talked about this before, how we read the story of like David and Goliath, and we try to insert ourselves, and we become David, and the problems we're facing are Goliath, and we pray for God to just, you know, direct, you know, our prayers become the stone, and we want that giant slay, and then we're the victors. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. It is first and foremost a story of humanity walking away from their creator through sin, and yet how we see God's love and God's heart for the people, that he comes himself, Jesus, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, sets aside everything he has in heaven to come to earth, take on human flesh, live a sinless life, but go and die in the sinner's place. That is the story of the Bible, and that is for you. It's through the Bible we learn God's heart for you. It's through the Bible that we learn of God's presence through the Holy Spirit. It's for you. And so I think this is why Jesus is saying, guys, get into the scriptures. Study it. It's reliable because as you get into it, you begin to discover just how alive God is and how powerful he is because it is for you. And you need to know this because there will be things that will happen in life, whether internally or pressure from the culture, the voices you're going to hear that are going to try to get you to say, no, this is what's good. The Bible runs counter to that, so therefore the Bible is wrong. And yet this Bible has weathered numerous cultures, numerous centuries. It's worked through all of it, and it still remains to this day. And as people go back to it over and over and over, it continues to prove itself because it's God's word. I don't want you to miss it like the Sadducees. I don't want you to be like them who have some familiarity with it. You think you know it, but deep down, you don't. So that's why I think if, if Jesus were here, he would try to encourage us. God wrote this thing for you, so read it. Study it. Get into it. So I'll say it again. If you don't have a Bible, download one to your phone. If you want a paper Bible, you want to go old school, stop by the resource table, pick one up. But then don't just use it on Sunday so that you look impressive to everyone around you. Use it on Monday in the privacy of your own home. And again on Tuesday. And again on Wednesday. And when you get ready to sit down, say, God, show me your heart. Show me your presence. Let me see that you're alive. Let me sense how powerful you are. Because God, I believe that this is reliable and you wrote it for me so that I could go and live the life you called me to. So let's get into the word. Because in it, we see God is alive and powerful. It's reliable and it's for us. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance to study the uh, passage out of Mark, I thank you, Jesus, for what you said to those Sadducees and how it still is relevant to us here in 2021. Lord, I pray for those of us, myself included, who think we know the Bible, and yet we may be missing some things. I, I think of the Apostle Paul, who, um, when he was in prison and in jail, he still asked for the scrolls to be given to him. He still wanted to continue to study it just in case there were some things he was missing. He wanted to see that you were alive and powerful, God. God, some of us here, we need to see your power. We need to sense it in your presence. So would you help us to get into your word? 
God, some of us, we've been dealing with, with doubt. There's, there's certain evidence that's coming our way. Would you help us to see that, that we don't have to be afraid of those things, those questions? Because you, God, have reigned over all of eternity. You already see the end. And so you've got this, and you've got us. And through these 40 human authors, you pinned this incredible work that mixes in history and poetry and, and, and instruction that ultimately it points us to Jesus. It is through him we see your heart for us. We see him going to the cross to die the death we should have died to give us the life that he always intended for us to live. So help us to become people of the word. Help us to, to not be lazy in our approach. Help us to, to dig in and let you minister to us, to shape us. Because God, your desire is to make us like Christ, to help us to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And because our world desperately needs that, help us, God, to capture your heart, to look at Jesus through these timeless scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray.